A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tired, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on the dawn bright lawn and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tired. So he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on a distant hill. For the caged bird sings of freedom. These beautiful words by Maya Angelou always come to my mind around this time of year as we move into our yearly summer season of independence and emancipation where our nation observes successive holidays of freedom. Memorial Day, the festival of Juneteenth we celebrate today and later the 4th and 5th of July. Today is Juneteenth, the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the end of slavery. African Americans have been celebrating their freedom on Juneteenth since 1865 when the Union General Gordon Granger announced General Order No. 3 proclaiming the emancipation of enslaved people in Texas, the last state in the Confederacy, still refusing to grant people freedom. Over the last 157 years, African Americans have celebrated Juneteenth with worship services, public readings of the Emancipation Proclamation, music and dancing, cookouts and street fairs, rodeos and family reunions, park parties and blues festivals. However, it was only last year, in 2021, that Juneteenth became a federally recognized holiday. Our church, you may know, recognizes federal holidays, which means we close our offices and give all of our employees, all the employees on our campus, the day off. Last year was the first time we observed Juneteenth as a federal holiday as a church, which means it is a new holiday for a certain segment of the population. So perhaps that is why this week a white man in our community took it upon himself to vandalize the signs that we put up about Juneteenth inside the Cornwall Center. Signs we posted there to let our members know the center would be closed on Monday to observe the holiday. These Juneteenth signs that we put up at the Cornwall Center portray an image of three women of color. And a vandal took a red marker and wrote, Seriously, in all capital letters across the sign, with a question mark at the end. He did not wait to talk to our director about the sign and its meaning. 
So we can only infer that this is a rhetorical question. Engaging in dialogue or seeking understanding were not the intention. Writing seriously in big red letters across the sign was a hostile action, a statement of opposition, a cynical wondering, a childing, a chiding gesture, as if to say, this is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Why are we observing Juneteenth here at the Cornwall Center? Why are we celebrating the end of slavery? Why are we taking the day to honor black freedom? Seriously? And some of you know I would love nothing more than to spend the next 20 minutes answering that vandal's question. <laughs> but my Angelou's words keep running around in my head. Particularly the stark contrast she draws between two different birds. The caged and the free bird in her poem. This powerful metaphor depicts a contrast in their lived reality, a contrast in their emotions and worldview, philosophy, attention, and activities. The free bird flies around the wind currents, feel, feeling as though it owns the sky. The caged bird, on the other hand, can barely move in its prison. It is angry and frustrated. Its wings are clipped and its feet are tied together and sore. All it can do is to sing fearfully of the thing it wants and does not know of, freedom. Freedom. It sings for freedom, and even those far off can hear its song. All the while, though, the free bird is focused on other things. The free bird is focused on the breeze and the sounds of the trees and the fat worms on the ground that he's looking to eat that day. And in the end, we learn once more that the, feel, the free bird feels as though it owns the sky. Reflecting on Maya Angelou's poem, one literary critic wrote this line that I had a hard time shaking. The free bird has no need of songs, but the caged bird sings because it is not free. Seriously? Is that true? Do free birds have no need of songs? The white man who defaced our Juneteenth sign at the Cornwell Center is like the free bird in Maya Angelou's poem. He imagines he has no need for Juneteenth, no need for songs, no need for celebration, no need for cookouts, parties, or a public recitation of the Emancipation Proclamation. He believes he has no need for a day off or music or dancing for rest and relaxation. He imagines he has no need for street fairs, rodeos, family reunions, park parties, and blues festivals. He thinks he has no need for songs because his life is a symphony. He imagines he has no, no need for freedom because he already has it. He has always been free. In fact, he's been free so long, he has come to imagine that the celebration of someone else's freedom is an imposition on him. Why are we celebrating their freedom, he wonders, as if every day of the week and every year of our Lord has not been a celebration of his freedom. If we've lived with freedom all our lives, if we've grown accustomed to freedom, 
then the celebration of other people's freedom can feel like oppression to us. Sadly, there are times when the free bird not only enjoys its freedom to fly, but seeks to silence the caged bird's song. Times when the free bird treats freedom like a scarce commodity, a zero-sum game, a limited resource, something to protect instead of share. And then that's when the caged bird's song becomes a threat, and the free bird does what it thinks it needs to do to protect the sky that it has come to believe that it owns. So the free bird rejects the caged bird's song and picks up a red marker to deface the caged bird's celebration with cynical questions like, seriously. Or perhaps the free bird does not pick up a marker but other things and gathers in an angry mob and assaults the United States Capitol in a seditious conspiracy or violent insurrection. Free birds who have always been free attacked our democracy because of a misplaced fear that they were losing their freedom. As we celebrate this summer season of freedom festivals like Juneteenth, we also find ourselves at a critical moment of reckoning in the history of our nation. Many of us are asking similar questions. How will we get past this horror? How can we heal and repair our wounds? How do we move forward as a people? One answer might be that we all must learn to sing the caged bird's song. I refuse to agree with a literary critic who said, the free bird has no need of songs. What a terrible idea. Free birds need a song. And I'm here to tell you that it's not Leonard Skinner. I know some of you have been thinking about that since the beginning of this sermon. You've been thinking about that song, Free Bird. Now is the time for you to let that go. The free bird needs a song, and it's not Leonard Skinner. The free bird must learn to sing the cage bird song, the cage bird's song of freedom. Learning to sing the cage bird song, though, is not as easy as it may seem. We can't just mouth the words to the ancient spirituals of enslaved Africans or sing hymns like Lift Every Voice or freedom songs like I Woke Up This Morning With My Mind Set On Freedom or gospel music. We can't just sing along to Billie Holiday or Paul Robeson, Abby Lincoln or Nina Simone, Jill Scott Heron, The Staple Singers, Odetta, Sam Cooke, Stevie Wonder, Sweet Honey in the Rock, Marvin Gaye or Roberta Flack and so many others. We can't just memorize the lyrics to Prince or Tracy Chapman, Beyonce, Common or India Ari, the cage bird song is not just a sing-along. It's a stand-along. It's a march-along. It's a live-along. So how do we learn to sing the cage bird song in that way? Our scripture today provides a one-word answer. There were a lot of words, but one word is the answer, and it's not seriously But it does start with an S. The word is splachnizomai. It's not Russian. It's not Ukrainian. It's a Greek word that is usually translated as compassion. 
In English, we sanitized and sentimentalized this word, but the original meaning of this Greek word describes a deeply embodied emotional experience. Splachnizomai means to have one's stomach churn, to feel like one's guts or insides are being torn apart. The word only appears eight times in all the Gospels. But every time it appears, it describes the feelings Jesus had when he encountered the poor and the sick and the hurting and the grieving and the hungry. That's the word. The word is never used to describe his feelings for Herod or Pilate or Caesar or for the Pharisees, chief priests or scribes, or even for his disciples that matter, his friends. It is only ever used to describe Jesus' feeling for the poor, the sick, and the hungry. Compassion, splachnizomai. Every time Jesus saw the poor, he was moved so deeply, he found profound physical and emotional pain like he was being punched in the stomach or his insides were being tied in knots. No, it wasn't pity. It was a deep empathy an intense form of divine compassion. It was splachnizomai. And the only time splachnizomai is used in the Gospels to describe the feelings of someone other than Jesus is when Jesus uses the word himself to describe the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. When the Father sees his son who he lost still far off. Jesus tells us the father was filled with splachnizomai and ran out to put his arms around him, kissed him. Today is not only Juneteenth, but also Father's Day. And we know how a father's love includes that experience of profound emotion when they see their children suffering, or hurting in pain. We cannot bear to watch our children suffer. It tears us up inside, rips us apart, it turns our stomachs inside out. But it's not just fathers, is it? Every one of us who has ever watched someone they love suffer, a parent, a partner, a sister, a brother, a spouse, a friend, a grandchild, a neighbor, knows the feeling of splachnizomai. Ah, but the difference in Jesus and the difference we're called to strive to take on and embody as his followers is that Jesus did not just feel splachnizomai for his own people or his own family or his own disciples. He felt it for the crowds, for the poor, the sick, the hungry, the marginalized and oppressed of the world. In fact, he felt it uniquely for them, specifically for them. And what got him in trouble is that he did not just feel empathy and compassion for them, but he let his divine splachnizomai provoke him into action. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He delivered people. And that's why James Cone, the theologian, once wrote, Jesus is not a proposition, not a theological concept which exists merely in our heads. He is an event of freedom. 
happening in the lives of oppressed people struggling for social and political freedom. Therefore, Cohn asserts, to know him is to encounter him in the history of the weak and the helpless. That is why it can be rightly said that there can be no knowledge of Jesus, Cohn contends, independent of the history and culture of the oppressed. It is impossible to interpret Scripture correctly or understand Jesus unless the interpretation is done in light of the consciousness of the oppressed and their struggle for freedom, the people Jesus felt splachnizomai for. In Matthew's Gospel specifically, Jesus appears as the new Moses, the liberator, who is constantly crossing over water like Moses, entering into the wilderness like Moses, feeding people like Moses, climbing up mountains like Moses, coming to liberate and deliver the sick, the hungry, and the poor and oppressed of the world like Moses, but not through armed revolt or violent insurrection, but through a powerful infusion of compassion that leads to acts of feeding and healing and freedom. Jesus was always singing the caged bird song. Yet he was also always trying to teach his disciples and even the Pharisees to embody that splagnizomai that he possessed for the poor and oppressed and to discover how they, they too can learn to sing the caged bird song if they want to. If they want to. Jesus' compassion for the sick and hungry in this story led to something akin to a Juneteenth barbecue, or better yet, a fish fry, where everybody brings what they have to share, and even though it doesn't look like it's going to be enough, no one goes hungry. And there are even leftovers for people to take home with them. Praise God. But in this case, it was not a little boy who offered up his picnic basket to feed the crowds, but the disciples themselves who possessed the loaves and fishes that were multiplied with the power of gratitude and redistributed to feed the hungry crowd. Our society, it seems, has figured out this part of the story. We have figured out that celebrating freedom requires feasting. Cookouts are a common thread from Memorial Day to Juneteenth to the 4th of July. It's one of the things that unites all the festivals of freedom. But we don't always do it well, do we? Even Walmart this year tried to cash in by creating a tone-deaf Juneteenth ice cream that no one asked for. No one asked for that, Walmart. <laughs> Buying ice cream is not the way to celebrate freedom. Freebirds who may want to commemorate Juneteenth with their money might consider reparations instead of ice cream. Just as it is not enough to sing along to freedom songs, it is not enough to engage in what people call performative allyship. We also have to dig deep into our souls to cultivate this emotion, splachnizomai, that deep empathy for others, that kind of intense compassion for the sick and hungry that turns our guts with solidarity for the oppressed. Anything that does not actually address the material conditions of slavery's ongoing legacy in every aspect of our society, from the environment to education, from health care to housing, from work to wages, is not enough. It's like that prayer of blessing from Iona that has become familiar to many of us. Dear God, give bread to all who are hungry. 
and a hunger for justice to all who are fed. On Juneteenth, we might pray, Dear God, give liberation to all who are oppressed and a hunger for liberation to all who are free. Or, dear God, give freedom to all the birds who are caged and the caged bird song to all who are free. Freedom has always been of critical importance to our forebears in the Baptist tradition. Our movement, this movement, began as a movement of freedom. The freedom to study the Bible on our own, the freedom to form communities in the way that we desired to, the freedom from domineering hierarchy and dogma, the freedom to choose when we want to be baptized, the freedom to believe without compulsion, soul freedom, freedom of conscience, liberty of conscience. These fragile freedoms, as they have come to be called, are the bedrock of Baptist identity. However, they have been narrowly misinterpreted in an overly individualistic and libertarian way by many so-called Baptists here in America as the freedom to say and do whatever you want. The freedom for licentiousness, the freedom to harm people, and the freedom to get away with it. Freedom from accountability of any kind. Yes, there is a vast difference between the libertarian view of freedom we saw on January 6th and that we see in Buffalo and Uvalde and Vestavia Hills, or the recent Southern Baptist abuse report. There's a difference between that and the truly liberative freedom that we see embodied in Jesus. Libertarian freedom says, this is mine. My right, my property, my gun, my country, my president, my election, my power, my freedom, for me and me alone, and no one gets to infringe upon it. Liberative freedom is different. Liberative freedom, on the other hand, says, this is our freedom. This is our country. This is our life together. We need each other. We are dependent on one another. If even one of us isn't free, then none of us are free. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Liberative freedom says, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting my time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Libertarian freedom begins with the selfish assertion of one's own rights and privileges and cannot sustain relationship or community. But liberative freedom begins with splagnizomai a deep empathy and compassion for our fellow human beings. It's freedom for community, the most powerful and fundamental spiritual wisdom that we've ever found in the universe is coming to that profound understanding of our common humanity, the undeniable reality that we are connected to each other and all living things, and our freedom and salvation and livelihood are bound up together. And that is the truth that is found in the liberative perspective. We live right now in an age that is severely lacking in compassion and empathy. Severely lacking the compassion and empathy we see in Jesus. We're living in a drought of splachnizomai. So when people ask us, how will we get past this horror? 
How will we heal and repair our wounds? How do we move forward as a people? The answer, tell them, tell yourself, the answer is to learn to sing the song of the caged bird. There are others, there are free birds who've learned that song. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, and so many of the great freedom singers throughout history. All free birds need to learn how to sing the caged bird song. Now we know that learning that song will require a deep and rigorous spiritual practice to unearth the massive display of splachnizomai that is needed to change our society today. But we don't have to begin with grandiose efforts. It can be overwhelming if we think we're going to change the hearts of everyone who has turned to hatred. Start small. Start somewhere. Start locally. Start with micro-acts of splachnizomai. Turns out we only need seven loaves and two fish, right? The song of the caged bird is contagious. It multiplies quickly. It spreads rapidly. It breeds collective effervescence when it is sung. Sing a freedom song with conviction and people will not be able to help themselves from joining along. Because the cage bird song is mightier than the pen and red markers stand no chance against it. The reason that the cage bird song is so powerful is that freedom is the very will of God in human history. From Exodus to Easter, from Pentecost to the Parousia, God is coming in different forms to free us, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. God is always singing the caged bird song and inviting us to learn how to sing that song of freedom with her and the oppressed peoples of our world until every single person is free, until even the free birds who think they're free and are not free become free as well. And God is trying to come into the world again through you and through me. Because freedom is no false flag. Jubilee is no joke. Liberation is no lie. Freedom is for real. God means it, and therefore we mean it. Seriously. <laughs>